Amen. Good morning. We serve a holy God, don't we? We're going to be talking about him a little bit this morning and talking about that aspect of his character in a little bit. But um, we're so glad that you're with us here at South City Church. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors, and it's our joy to have you. If you're new to us or sort of new, either way, whatever, or if you're old to us, even that's fine too. We love you. We're so glad that you're with us to worship with us and to... Uh, uh, just get into what God wants to speak to us this morning. We've been in this series in the book of Acts for three summers. This is our third summer. And this is the last message of this series uh, for this summer. And we're going to hit it again next summer. But what a beautiful example that God has given us in this text about who we're to be in the world. How we're supposed to honor the one true God, this holy king. And yet also how we're supposed to have a compassion for people. And love people enough that we tell them about Jesus. And so uh, this is a great morning this morning to kind of get into our text. Um, you might remember last week we finished up with Paul on the run again. Remember this time it was from uh, a city called Berea. And uh, Paul has left Timothy and Silas in Berea so that they can disciple these people. They weren't there very long. Uh, they were, remember the, the text said they were noble people. And they really wanted to know the Word. And so this was going to be uh, maybe an easier task than some other cities, but still something that Paul wanted Timothy and Silas to help them go deeper in their discipleship. Discipleship is not a one-and-done thing, right? Discipleship is a process. It's a journey. We get from, from here to here uh, over time and over uh, effort, over seeking the Lord and knowing His Word and, and Him expressing Himself to us. And so it's a process. How are you doing on that journey? Uh, it's not just something that happens immediately. It takes intentionality and effort. And so we're glad you're here this morning to help in that process. But he leaves Paul and Silas. He leaves Silas and Timothy uh, there to continue this discipleship process in Berea. But he's escorted not to the next town over necessarily. He's escorted quite a ways away to the great city of Athens. An amazing, amazing city. 270 miles away from Berea. He gets there, and when he gets there, he's like, yeah, this is, uh, I want my boys with me now. If you guys will go back and tell my boys to come join me, that would be a good thing. So he has the, the folks that are escorting him go back to Berea, tell Silas uh, and uh, Timothy to come join him in Athens. Of course, that's going to be another couple of weeks um, that they have to disciple, and then another couple of weeks before they even get to him. So Paul's in Athens for a while by himself. Now, Paul would have been very familiar with this city. As a young Greek boy, he would have heard of, of the gods, right? Heard of places that were famous for this city and heard of people who were famous for this city. He would have known about this city. This, would, this was the city of Athens. And so here Paul is now wandering around these streets, maybe his childhood memories making him wonder about certain places and certain uh, locations that he wants to scout out. I don't know about you, but it's kind of like the first time you ever go to New York City. You know what I mean? If you've ever been to New York City, I grew up here in Little Rock, and Little Rock's not the largest city in the world. Uh, you might not know that, but it's just, just not kind of a small place. And so when you go to New York City, there's kind of a sense of like, oh my gosh, you know? It's a spectacle, isn't it? I mean, the buildings are huge. The uh, sights are tremendous. There's so many people. The smells of New York are unique to New, to New York. Um, it's an interesting place, you know what I mean? But there's nothing like the first time you fly in, the first time you drive in. I even took a train one time from Philly into New York, and there's nothing like that trip as well. Uh, but uh, 
it's a spectacle. And I can just imagine Paul walking around the great city of Athens, taking in these sights and all the things that he's known from his whole lifetime. So I want us to jump into our text this morning as he looks around the city. Let's join him, can we, in the story of the church. Acts 17, verse 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked with him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's, he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. May God bless the reading of his word. Can we pray real quick before we get into the text? Lord, you're so kind and so good and so loving, and we've already spent such a sweet time worshiping you as the one true, holy, and wonderful God that you are. So by your grace, God, would you give us uh, clarity through your Holy Spirit to guide us to all truth. God, would you help me and anoint me now? Thank you so much for these folks that are with us. May we learn of your word so that we might grow deeper into who we are in you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So Paul's walking around the city. He's seeing the breathtaking art, the breathtaking architecture. Uh, it was known for some of the most famous figures in Western civilization. Um, the hero, the uh, Historian Herodotus, big, big deal. Uh, he's from Athens. The father of Western medicine, Hippocrates. To this day, we still have the Hippocratic Oath. was given to us by Hippocrates, um, his hometown, Athens. Father of Western philosophy, Socrates, who taught Plato, who taught Aristotle. So uh, Western thought, right? Western philosophy, these men. Um, these places that are phenomenal. I've never been there. I want to go one day. Places like the Acropolis, sitting at the highest point in the city, a place of worship for the gods. In fact, the very word in the Greek, Acropolis, means high cities. Well, not far away is another unbelievably impressive structure from that time period called the Parthenon. And inside the Parthenon is a sculpture of the goddess Athena. She was the goddess of wisdom. Uh, Lori and I lived in Nashville, Tennessee for 11 years. And if you go to Nashville, there's a replica of the Parthenon. And it's not falling down. It's like whole replica. And it's built to scale. Just It looks exactly like that, except still put together. And uh, it's phenomenal. Just the scale, the size of this place is unbelievable. It was even said of Athena that the tip of her spear was made from gold. And from 40 miles away, you could see that gold tip of her spear glint in the sun. Just imagine the kind of city from 40 miles away is sparkling to you. There's also a uh, 50 yards away from the Parthenon is a, a little hill where a temple is built to the Greek god of war, Ares, or Ares, who corresponded with the Roman god of war, Mars. And it's a place where we see Paul in our text, the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, same place. So Paul's walking around, so much to see, right, like New York. So many incredible structures, so much in, incredible art, people that look different than what he's used to maybe, people that are doing things that are just seem crazy to him. I don't know. 
But what's interesting is in the text, it doesn't bring attention to the fact that Paul is overwhelmed with art. It doesn't say that Paul is just taken aback by the beauty of architecture. That's not what's on Paul's heart and Paul's mind. Look in the text with me and see what it says. It says that the city is full of idols. It's full of idols, which is kind of hard to give us a good understanding. Literally what it's trying to say is that the city of Athens is buried beneath idols. That it's smothered in idols. In fact, a comedian sort of writer of the time period said, when you go to Athens, it's easier to find a God than it is to find a man. Idols littered this place. And Luke says it's full of idols. So it's not the beauty that he sees that he focuses on that moves him. It's the idols. It says Paul is provoked in his spirit. Paul is convicted about what he sees. He's moved. He, he's, his heart is hurting. And what's interesting is Paul doesn't experience Athens as a Greek, which he was. Right? I mean, just imagine growing up a young Greek boy, you would have heard of this place where they worship the gods. And yet he doesn't experience Athens as a Greek. He experiences Athens as a Christian. Because when he walks around, he doesn't have a national pride of all that's been created. Instead, he has a disgust for what's going on, the worship of idols. He has a Christian worldview. We've talked about that before. A Christian worldview is just the way you see life. Everything that happens in your life, everything that revolves around your life, do you filter everything through how you believe as a believer in Jesus? That's a Christian worldview. So everything you allow into your mind, the things that you see with your eyes, the things you pay for with your money, the things you do with your body, every single thing in your life should be filtered through a Christian worldview. And so Paul is now experiencing this amazing city, but not as a Greek, as a Christian, and his heart is provoked. It's, it's broken. It's moved. Something didn't sit right with Paul as he walked around this city. And he begins to find a righteous indignation, a jealousy. Does that sound like anybody else you know? Right? It sounds exactly like God. And you're right. That's, that's what God does when, we, when he sees idols in our lives and he sees us turning to something other than him because worship belongs to him and him alone. Right? We're created, people. We're created to worship. Erwin McManus is one of my favorite writers. He says, every human being is created to believe, belong, and become. No matter where you are, no matter what tribe, no matter where you are on the face of the earth, people are going to worship something. You're all worshiping something. The question is, is it the, the one true God of the universe? And Paul's heartbroken over what he's seeing. And it reminds me of, of God himself. Look at Deuteronomy 32, 21, where God says, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Psalm 78, 58, For they provoked me to anger with their high places. Does that sound like the Acropolis? Yeah. And moved him to jealousy with their graven images. Jeremiah 44, 3, Because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they knew not. You see, that's one thing about having a Christian worldview. When we, we truly filter all of life, everything through who we are in Christ, then we're going to begin to reflect who he is. The things that, that, that bother God should bother us. 
The things that burden God should burden us. And that's exactly what we see in Paul as he's walking around the city. But he's not just angry. He's not just frustrated or depressed. He actually is compassionate. And he sees that these people all around him are believing a lie. They're believing a lie, and I don't, I don't want this. And so he begins to let his conviction move him to conversation. You know, I remember in, uh, back in the day, I guess back about 2009, I did a trip uh, to India, which was an amazing trip. I was a spokesperson for the International Mission Board. We went all over the, the uh, country of India doing videos, and I was speaking and doing different things. And it was an incredible trip, but there was one day we took off. And we were just going to kind of rest up in the air conditioning, you know. And I was, I'm game for that for a day. And we just stayed in this little apartment. And I thought it would just be real restful and easy. And it wasn't. Because I find myself weeping most of the day. I found my heart burdened. Unbelievably burdened with the lostness that I had seen around that country. My mind was filled with the little faces of the beautiful children my mind was filled with the pictures, pictures and the images of all these idols. And they're scary idols. Really terrifying in India. And I thought it would be a day of rest and it was just a day of mourning. It was a day of provocation. It was a day of my heart being broken for people who didn't know Jesus. Have you ever felt that before? Maybe you've been to Vegas. Maybe you've been to New York. Maybe you've been to Little Rock. And there's something there that makes you go, oh God, this does not please you. It breaks your heart because it breaks God's heart. And it moves you to prayer. It moves you to struggle, to depression. I was moved to depression. I didn't know what to do. I was paralyzed in this feel, feeling. This burden for people's souls that thousands of people every day are dying and going to hell. And I'm sitting in an air-conditioned apartment that doesn't do any good. But my heart was burdened and moved. You see, it's, it's one thing to be convicted. It's one thing to be provoked. It's another to allow that conviction in your soul to move you to conversation. We won't do any good if we just stay convicted and we don't ever have conversations. Let it move us to help people understand who Jesus is. Verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So we're used to Paul going to the synagogue. We're used to him reasoning and explaining and proving, right, in the synagogue with the Jews. But now we see something a little different. On Saturdays, he's in uh, the synagogue. But every other day, he's in the marketplace. I mean, he's where everybody is. And I love this last phrase of the sentence that says, every day with those who happen to be there. Right? He's not looking for a certain group of people. He doesn't have a certain, he wants leaders, or he wants this, or he wants, no, whoever happens to be there, I want to tell about Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? He's just starting conversations. And what's so cool is Paul's not preaching in the marketplace. This is very ironic and interesting. Paul's using the Socratic method in the marketplace. So Paul, in the hometown of Socrates, is using his method to help people know about Jesus. Now, how awesome is that? Right? Which just means he's asking questions. He's getting feedback. What do you think about what I'm saying? Talk to me. Tell me what you believe. Tell me where you are. 
It's a, it's a dialogue. It's a conversation. And so he's using the very method of Socrates in his hometown. So I think it's interesting. Paul doesn't wait. You notice this? If it were me, <laughs> you know, we talk about team and we talk about leadership. We talk about those kind of concepts all the time. Part of me wants to think, I get to Athens and I go, all right, let me just check this place out for a month. We're going to find out where we're going to start preaching. It's going to be over there. It's a really good place. Good people can hear, right? There's always a lot of people. That'll be a good place once we start. Um, I'm not sure. I got to get some clothes that they'll, you know, you're logistics minded. You know what I mean? That's not Paul. He's not waiting on Silas and Timothy to get there so he can do what God's called him to do. <laughs> Paul is bold, man. Paul is in this city, and he is about to go at these folks, and he's just having a conversation. He's going for it. He let his conviction lead him to the very calling on his life, and just, I've got to go forward. I've got to do what God's called me to do, regardless of the team. Whenever they get here, they'll get here, but this is what God has called me to do, and that's what I'm going to do. So he's, he's teaching. He's using the Socratic method in the marketplace, and he runs into these, these guys who have, they're philosophers, and Luke tells us that they're Epicureans and they're Stoics, right? And they kind of insult Paul. They say, what is this babbler saying? What is he saying to us? Which is a pretty good diss on Paul, you know, but he's basically saying uh, in the Greek, it literally means seed picker. The word babbler means seed picker, which is kind of more Athenian slang. And it just means that he's like a bird that's picking out certain seeds and throwing them up. Certain seeds. He's just taking certain ideas. He has no original thought. He's just getting this idea and that idea, and he's just trying to confuse us all with all these new ideas. And so Luke mentions these two different people, and it's important for us to know what they believe, Epicureans and Stoics, because we're going to see Paul do something that's absolutely brilliant, something that we have to do as a church and we have to do as believers every day in this culture that we live in. But we can't, we can't go to this culture unless we know the culture a little bit, right? We can't speak the language of people around us unless we know a little bit of the language. We might not even be able to have a conversation with people of other religions and other faiths or no faith. Or they have zero understanding of Scripture if we don't know a little bit of where they are and what their life is about. And so that's what we see Paul do. So let, let me help you explain. Let me explain to you what Epicureans and Stoics believe real quick. Epicureans believe in the gods, obviously. But they believe that the gods are a long ways away. They're far off, and they don't care about humanity. And they have the finest of everything. And so these, these Epicureans believe, you know, they, they believe the gods are far off and that the gods are doing whatever they want. They're living a luxurious lifestyle. Have you ever seen an Epicurean market? You ever heard of that? There's some grocery stores and some places that still use that term. It just, it's a term of luxury. It's the finest items that you can have. It's, it's the nice stuff. And so these people who had an Epicurean thought, they thought, well, if that's what I believe about the gods, then that's who I'm going to be, and I'm going to live my life in luxury as well. If it feels good, do it. Does that sound familiar to anybody's culture like ours? Or YOLO, right? You only live once, so just go for it. You can't, you can't keep from dying. Everybody's going to die, they believe. But when you die, there's no judgment. So make this life count, right? Just do whatever you want. If it feels good, there's no consequences, Whereas the Stoics believed something a little differently. Stoics were belief, their belief was more of like a new age belief in the sense that they, they believed they were really connected to nature. Uh, they, they emphasized fatalism, submission, endurance of pain. Life is hard and we just got to get through, right? You just got to get through. We got to just grin and bear it in our lives. 
because this is what life is. There's nothing we can do about it anyway, but we're in harmony with the world. And it just, it's kind of like what I mentioned last week. You just pull your, pull your boots, pull your boots up by your bootstraps, you know, that whole thing. Just like the rest of the animals, they got the survival of the fittest. That's the way it is for us. We just got to make a way and we just got to survive and that's all there is to it. We're going to be self-sufficient. But the thing that, that we need to see here in the same way that we see other philosophies around our culture is both of these thoughts, both of these religions, if you will, are meaningless. They're hopeless. If you follow both of these to the nth degree, to the end, you lead to nowhere. Life meant nothing. My life meant nothing. Your life means nothing. We live and then we die and then nothing happens, right? It's hopeless. And yet we're going to see Paul understand both of these uh, mindsets and speak directly to them in his message in just a minute. One of the things that Luke says about the Athenians is that they love new stuff. That doesn't sound like us, does it? Standing outside the Apple store, Brother Jerry. Jerry's got Apple products all over the place. <laughs> Standing outside the Apple store, waiting on the watch, wait, or waiting on the phone. We do that, don't we? What, when's the new movie coming out? When's the new book? When's the new music? We love new things. We take that from uh, the Athenians, I guess. And the center of their conversation about new things was this place called the Areopagus. We showed you a picture of it. So Paul finds himself one moment in the marketplace, kind of Socratic discussion with whoever's there. And then all of a sudden they whisk him away to the Areopagus, which is the center of the city for philosophizing. <laughs> it is the center of the place where people want to discuss thought, new things, ideas. Are you kidding me? Paul's just been invited to the very epicenter of what people believe and, and want to hear from, and he has an incredible opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus? Yeah. And Paul does not back down. Now, I want you to notice something about this conversation Paul begins to have. Normally, when he's in the synagogue, he starts with Jesus as Messiah, right? This is Jesus as Messiah. You've been reading about him. Read him. Well, he can't do that here because these people don't know what Messiah is. They don't know what Scripture is. They don't have any context scripturally, which, by the way, many of the people that you live around and you work around that are in your sphere of influence don't have any clue what the Bible says. Many of the people that you're going to connect with are going to be in your circle of influence. They, they know telling what kind of religion they believe. So we need to pay close attention to how Paul ministers to these people, how Paul speaks to these people, because it's an interesting study on evangelism and mission. So Paul starts out, instead of uh, with discussion of Messiah, he does something unbelievably brilliant. I mean, this is an absolute study in church ministry, church planting, evangelism, mission. This is brilliant. Paul uses their culture, their language, their uh, sayings, their, all the things that, that he sees in the culture, he uses to help explain the gospel to them. It's called context, contextualization. That just means that you basically help people to understand something you want them to know by using terms they get. Many of you remember our friend Rick Russell. We love Rick, and Rick has a, such a heart for the nations. And uh, Rick started a radio program not too long ago where he, it's, it's a program that's in Africa, and he's, he's mainly speaking, and the people who are translating are mainly translating, uh, to, to tribal people. 
And so that the way that they want to use contextualization in this situation is they talk, it's, the radio show is about the great chief. Do you want to ask the great chief a question? And, and so people will ask these questions and they go to God's word and say, what does the great chief have to say about life? Isn't that awesome? They're using something they understand to help introduce the word of God to their lives. That's contextualization. When you help somebody understand something, you want them to know by using their own terms. That's what Paul is doing. Verse 22, he says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar uh, with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. See, he's using the things in their town, the things that mean a lot to them. He walks around, he says, this city is buried beneath these idols, right? Well, you guys must be pretty religious. I see that you're very religious, all these objects of your worship. I see you're worshiping these things, right? He says, I also found this inscription on this altar that says, to the unknown God. What's interesting is, the God that you don't know, I know him. Isn't that awesome? Don't you know that in the Areopagus, everybody went, what? Ears perked up, hearts opened up, faces lit up like, you've got to be kidding. You know, there's several religions that have this sort of unknown God, they, like, like Hinduism. They have so many gods, and then they'll have a few that they don't know, but they'll say, this is the unknown God in case we missed one, right? That's what they're doing here. And Paul's saying, oh, I know him. And here's what's awesome. And he goes against the Epicurean thought and says, you can know him too. You can know him too. Knowing that they wanted to hear the newest thing at this place, he knows that they're going to sit up and listen to what he has to say. So he, use, he uses context. He uses their sayings, literally their stuff, to teach them about the truth of who God is. So the first place he goes in this conversation is creation. Look with me in Scripture, verse 24. It says, The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, <laughs> when you read Paul's message and you really get into it and you really pay attention to what he's saying, it's kind of offensive. Do you notice this? Paul is using context by saying, I see the idols, I see your religion. I happen to know the unknown God that you don't know. That's the first point of conflict that Paul brings out. He makes it very, very clear here. He's going to go against some things. 
And then he flies in the face of Epicurean thought when he says, listen, God's not aloof. He's not far away. He does care about humanity. In fact, he's not far from each of us, right? That's, that's the one true God. He's close. I love, he, he, he makes this assertion literally standing in the temple built to the God of war. And he says, you can't fit God in a temple. Just, can you feel that tension? So you know they're going, did you see the place you're like, have you looked outside at all the temples? Like he is going right at the jugular of what they believe. You can't fit the one true God in a temple. He won't fit in your little temples. He wants them to see that God made us. We don't make God. He doesn't need anything from us. Our, our, you know, I've told you before about our next door neighbor we love very much. We pray for their salvation all the time. But they're Hindu, and uh, in one of their bedrooms they have uh, some gods. And they will bring in a platter of food or flowers or different things to leave at the, at the, with the idols. You know? I think about Elijah on Mount Carmel with, with the worshipers of Baal and when uh, <laughs> Baal is not getting the job done, right, with the altar, the fire's not coming down, all of his worshipers are frustrated, and, and uh, Elijah has a little fun with him and says, hey, where's, uh, where's your God, right? Is he, um, is he busy? Maybe he's asleep. Or maybe your God had to go to the bathroom. Remember that? He literally says, maybe your God had to go to the bathroom. Listen, we who believe in the one true God, he has no need of us. He has no need that we bring to him. He has everything he needs, right? We don't have to bring something to him. Our God is sovereign over all things. In verse 26, it says, he made from one man every nation of mankind. And can I just stop for a second and say, people who believe in white supremacy are idiots. That they call themselves Christians, they're idiots, any race that would say their race is better than another and then still call themselves a Christian, morons. Can I tell you why? Look right here. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. Amen? God created us all, and you can't undo that. All right. Off my soapbox for a second there. He created every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods. That means he's over time. He's over seasons. He's over all things and the boundaries of their dwelling, over nations. Where this nation comes to here and that nation goes to there, that's God's sovereignty. Then he says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. I want you to see that, that he's alluding to the reality that we live in a fallen culture. That we can't find God. We don't even seek for God, he says in Romans. Nobody does. And so we search wretched, poor, blind, and naked. We can't find God, and yet he's created every person to worship. Every person, person to seek for something greater than themselves. And by God's mercy and grace through Jesus, we can know him. He says... He's actually, in other words, you folks that believe this craziness, he's actually not far from us. He's right here. He's not far from each of us. See how personal he makes it? Going against that Epicurean thought. 
He says, God has created and sustained mankind from the beginning of time. He's over, he's over time itself. He's over seasons. He's over boundaries. He's over all men, all time, all geography. He mentions that men seek God and have to feel their way toward him. And again, he's, he uses context in such a specific way that he's going to quote Greek uh, poetry. So he's now going to use phrases from popular culture. Look what he says. He's quoting Paul. This is not Paul's original writing. Paul is quoting from a Greek poet. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being. You know what that sounds like to me? Colossians 1. Right? Take a look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20 where it says, in Jesus all things were made and all things hold together by him. So he's using, he's using the actual culture of the day, the phrases of the day, the poetry of the day to help speak these aspects of truth. Then he says, as for some of your own pro, uh, poets have said, right? I'll bring it to your attention. This is one of your poets if you don't know it. For we are indeed his offspring. Right? In other words, God is our father. He is our father. It's, it's not that, are you made of stone? Are you made of silver? Are you made of gold? Of course not. Therefore, your father's not made of stone and silver and gold. Paul uses a framework as he preaches here that I think is good for us to look at. He mentions creation. He mentions fall. He mentions our need to seek and find God. He mentions our need for repentance. Right? And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the gospel message he's tried to explain has now come down to this application point for the hearers. So I've mentioned all these things, but here's where it meets the road. It's about repentance. It's about Jesus as our rescuer and our judge. Look in verse 30 with me. It says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Listen, Daryl mentioned it right just a minute ago in his prayer. And the fact that the fact that we are here and can worship is an act of God's mercy. The fact that God doesn't zap each one of us every time we sin is an act of God's active mercy and common grace over our lives. But don't make the mistake to think that God didn't see it. Don't make the mistake to think that he didn't pay attention to every broken thing in this world. And that he has set a day. He has set a day that is coming. This is, listen, this is not just history we're studying here. This is future we're studying. He has set a day where he will judge every broken thing, every sinful thing. And he said, now is the time. He tells the people, now is the time that you repent. So even though God seems like God has overlooked a few things, uh-uh, the day is coming. And he will judge. And not only will he judge by this man, Jesus. Jesus is the rescuer. That's the hope, right? We don't have to be judged in that way. We can take Jesus' sacrifice for us. He can be our rescuer and our judge, and, and we wouldn't have to worry about a thing when we trust and know him. Paul talks about the resurrection at the end of this phrase. And I, sometimes when you're talking to people about Jesus, 
what happens to us happen to him. And that is that sometimes people laugh at that idea. Really? You think Jesus died for all of our sins and went into a grave and God raised him right? Sure. Look what it says here. Verse 32. It says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They're making fun of him. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. You know, some people, the idea of the gospel, the idea of Jesus living a sinless life, being God's son, taking on the form of man, dying on a cross, being raised from the grave, it's just silliness. Some people will laugh and mock. And I couldn't help but be drawn to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18 when he said, for the power of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Listen, this morning, if you, you think about the gospel, you think about Jesus on a cross or a, a resurrected Jesus and you, you smirk or you make fun or you think it's hilarious, can I tell you, you are in danger, my friend. You're in great danger of the hells of fire, the fire of hell. I promise you. You're in great danger of living a life that means nothing. It's meaningless, just like the Epicureans and the Stoics. You're going to follow your life, and you're going to live however you want to live, and just not going to worry about consequences. And one day, a judgment time is coming. It's coming. And we have to be ready. We have to acknowledge this aspect. And Paul, in his compassion for people, shares this truth. But for those of us who believe, for those of us who are being saved and know Jesus and trust this story, trust this gospel, it is the very power of God. It's so clear. It is life to me. This is not something I kind of believe. This is not just something I adhere to. This is not just something I go to on a Sunday. This is all that I am. Because guess what? We don't don't know when we're going to die. We have no idea what day God is going to call us home. And a judgment will await for our souls. Will you be ready? So the Spirit of God reveals the truth to some of these people here in the Areopagus. And Luke gives us only two names, though more were saved. Dionysius is a man who was part of the council of the Areopagus. And a woman by the name of Demarius. Now it's rumored in Christian history that Dionysius became the first Christian bishop of Athens and that he also was martyred for his faith. We don't know, there's a rumor, I don't know. You can't uh, verify that. But we do know that, that Paul doesn't go back to Athens. And we also know that we're not sure really there's a church that was established there. I was thinking about this this morning just thinking about a time in mine and Lori's life, we, we planted a little church in Franklin, Tennessee called Roots Church. And we were following the Lord's leadership and trying to be obedient to him. And it was a very organic kind of simple church. <laughs> we met in a coffee shop and um, we had a little curtain and behind the curtain is where the kids met and the adults met over here and it was noisy as all get out. 
And if you go to Franklin, Tennessee today, you won't find Roots Church. It didn't make it. And thinking about Paul in Athens kind of com comforted me in that thought, you know. I believe we were being obedient in that season, and part of me mourns the fact that the church didn't make it, that, that it's not still going, but it had its purpose. We, we led people to the Lord. We loved people well. We discipled people there. And I think about Paul in Athens. Maybe there wasn't, at that point, some uh, community of people, but yet God used his life and his obedience in that place. As I close, I want to just ask you a couple of questions, can I? Paul walked into this city. It's full of idols. He's convicted. He's provoked. He's burdened. Where are you in that sort of thing, huh? Are you the kind of believer that lives by convictions? Do you have convictions in your life? Do you have a, a Christian worldview that actually moves your heart towards the things of God? Or that you become provoked, or you become burdened? Or the things that you see that make you go, that's probably not good for me, right? See, I think it's good for us to know culture. It's good for us to know what people are seeing and watching, and, but it doesn't mean we're drawn into it, right? There's, I thought of this example the other day. I thought, you know, I've had different conversations about this television show, Game of Thrones. And uh, I know about Game of Thrones. I know kind of what it's about, and I've seen a few of the scenes. I kind of have an idea of what people are talking about. I get a sense of it. But my Christian worldview will not allow me to watch it because I know that some of the things in that show will lead my heart away from the Lord I love. It will. It's the reality. There's things that I don't need to see. There's things that my heart doesn't need to, to, to rest on and remember. But I need to have an understanding so I can have a conversation, right? How many things in our lives that are like that that we need to understand, we need to know where people are, but it doesn't mean that we just fully immerse ourselves. Are there things in your life that convict you, that burden you, that sadden you for the world around you? Because that's what we see happening in Paul's life, and yet his conviction led him to have conversations. John Stott says this, all idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between the creator and his creatures in order to bring him under our control. That's what idolatry is. When we think we're more important, or what we think is more important ought to take the place of God. And we, who would ever say, I think this ought to take the place of God? Nobody ever really makes that comment. We just live in such a way that it's true. What in your life have you taken God out and placed that thing in? Is it your job? Is it your spouse? Is it your children? Is it your dream? Is it your greatest hobby and love? What are the things that you struggle with? Because really it's you trying to control the one true God. Or it's you trying to be God. Reminded of the first commandment in Exodus, the very first one, right? You shall have no other gods before you. And then the second don't make any graven thing that you would worship, that you would bow down to, that you would serve. And how many of us have something in our lives that we serve, that we trust, that we hope in, that we rest in instead of resting and trusting and serving and bowing to the one true God? Paul's conviction led him to conversation 
And he used context to help people understand. What conversations do you need to have? Do you need, do you need to have some? Are there people that, that you know may believe uh, something that's not the truth and you have a compassion and a conviction for them to know Jesus? My prayer is that you wouldn't just be burdened. <laughs> My prayer is that we wouldn't just pray, but that we would, it would lead us to places of conversation. And lastly, I just want to encourage you in this framework because I think it's important. Our culture is full of people who think they know everything about everything, right? There's a lot of different religions, a lot of different ways, and uh, half Bible and half this and half that, and there's a lot of people who don't know anything about the Bible. Very much like the culture in Athens, and yet Paul goes and speaks about the Creator because you can't walk outside and not acknowledge creation. The beauty of our God as Creator, right? Sustainer of our lives, ruler of all things, of all nations, of all time. The fact that He can still be known, even though He's so big, the fact that He can still be known. He's the Father of humanity. The fact that Jesus alone can save. And that not only is he our savior, he's our judge. And there's a time coming where he will do just that. Can I just ask you, friends, as we close right now, are you ready for that moment? Do you know that you're ready for that moment? Do you know that that God has saved your soul and changed your life? That your life is different? That there's transformative discipleship in your life. That you've changed. Because repentance doesn't just mean I prayed a prayer. Repentance means I changed my life. God changed my life. I turned from this way to that way. That's what repentance means. And Paul's pleading with the Areopagus and saying, now is the time to repent. Friends, go ahead and put it in our language. It's, today's the day. You don't, you, you don't know about tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. Jesus is our Savior and our judge, and that time is coming. Will you be ready? Will you be ready? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Thankful for this study in Acts and thankful for how God has taught me so much and convicted my heart of so many things. And I'm thankful of this little glimpse of Paul's ministry here in Athens, that he he was mostly affected by what burdened God's heart. And yet I'm convicted that I'm not burdened enough for what burdens God's heart. And I have to continue, I'm continually praying, God, help me to have your eyes. Help me to have your heart for the things that burden your heart. And let me be burdened for people who don't know you. To have compassion that actually leads me to conversation. And Lord, in my own life, may I repent, may my life be different, may I turn around, God. And seek you and find you, not have to grasp and grapple for you. Because Jesus has given me life everlasting. 
Lord God, if there's somebody here this morning that doesn't know you as Savior, they, they know they've lived a sinful life. They know they've made bad choices, and yet they've never made a decision to follow Christ. They don't even know what that means. God, would you lead them in conviction down to this altar? Would you lead them to somebody they know who will pray for them and care for them and love them? Would you lead them, Father, to a church? If that's ours, praise God. Lead them to a church that will lead them in discipleship so that they know you and love you, God. Lord, today we worship Jesus, our Savior and our coming judge. And God, with hands held high and hearts open, we say thank you, Lord, that that judgment is not on our souls. It's, it's been taken by our Savior. He has met every requirement, Lord, that you have. He has paid the price for us, and it is in him that we believe that that punishment has been finished. Praise God. It is finished, and we can know you, and now we can be used of you to make you known. God, burden our hearts for what burdens yours and change us today. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Will you stand with us this morning?